Hello, and welcome to the Human Entropy Podcast, a podcast where we can discuss the chaos, the adversity, and the triumph that is being human. I'm Felicia Parker, I live in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm passionate about sharing the resilience I see in other people that inspire me to chase what makes me feel most alive. This is a place to be a friend, a place to encourage, and a place to challenge. This is Human Entropy. Today's episode is a little different. A not so little known fact about me is that I have a true crime obsession, and I think I'll probably spend the rest of my life trying to figure out why. But regardless, true crime podcasts are my favorite forever. And in the spirit of spooky season, this Halloween, I thought I would try covering a true crime case on my own, even though this is the exact opposite of my typical theme. This episode does discuss unpleasant and disturbing behaviors, as well as deaths of the people involved in the case. And so listener discretion is advised. Summer. Felicia. Hi. Hi. So fun fact for our listeners, actually many fun facts. I am in my closet and Summer is in my bedroom, just right on the other side of the closet door. And so I'm going to do my best to edit any echoes that you might hear, but if you do hear them, please know that is why. But Summer, aside from not being able to see you while we do this in real life, see you, this is the first interview I have done and will publish in person. Oh, wow. Yeah. Everything yeah. else has been over Zoom. Wow, this is awesome. I can see you kind of through a crack, so that counts. <laughs> well, good. So it's spooky season, and because it's spooky season, I wanted to do an episode that's a little spooky. And I know that you're a true crime enthusiast like myself. I don't know if you are as um, much of an addict as I would say that I am, but I... Last week, you're pretty diehard. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I, I wanted to do this episode with you because of the few times I have posted on social media of like, hey, I've run out of crime podcasts to listen to. What are people's recommendations? You gave me so many good ones and I flew through all of them in probably a week, maybe less. But so I thought of you to do this with um, my personal favorite crime junkie podcast or crime podcast is Crime Junkie. And I can't talk about it too much. I've asked those girls, I've emailed them 10,000 times if they would <laughs> just do an interview with me, just because I would love to know their logic or their um, upbringing that would have, it would have led them to becoming so obsessed with true crime as they are. And maybe that might help me figure out why I'm so obsessed with it. Mm-hmm. But um, they're really, 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 really famous because they have like one of the number one podcasts in the world. So I understand the not um, giving back to the peasants. I understand, but I'm one day, maybe that can happen. It's funny that you brought that up the other day because um, we've talked about my favorite murder being one of my favorite podcasts. And um, I was listening to an episode they did with Conan and they talked about like, why do you think people like us are so interested in like the gory details of these crime scenes And they said exactly what you said. They're like, I think it's just knowing that's 
doesn't ever feel like the answer to us um, going that far. And so just the desire to know, like, why would someone be driven to do something so horrible? And they said literally exactly what you said the other day at Steadfast. And I was like, yeah, that's it. Just trying to figure out like what goes through someone's head that takes them, you know, all the way to the, the edge like that. Definitely. I'm very interested in the psychology of it because mm-hmm. yeah, what, what on earth caused you to take life? I don't mm-hmm. understand, but um, maybe something's wrong with me for being so curious. I have no idea. And tell my dad all the time. Cause he's also very much obsessed with true crime. And we both just constantly are like, we're sick. We're, something's wrong with us. <laughs> but so this is a very crazy case. Um, and f- in fact, it's not just one case, it's many because we're talking about the crimes of a serial killer, but I chose it because this killer is from my hometown in Wichita, Kansas. And funnily enough, growing up, knowing who he was, I didn't know any of the things that I researched. So it's a little spooky to me because, you know, it talks about the Wichita Public Library or it talks about Cake TV, like the local news station that I grew up watching and the library I grew up going to. It's just weird that it all happened in my own hometown. Um, But I do remember, um, I'm going to preface this case with the man is caught, he's put away, Everyone can hopefully sleep a little bit easier knowing that I started with that. So you can listen knowing that he did eventually get caught. But the day that he was arrested, my dad was in town. My dad has lived in California all my life. And I want to say he was arrested around my birthday because my dad was back in Kansas, I think for my birthday. It could have been for something else. But so I was away from my mom when he got caught on news. And my grandpa has been in the police force all of his career as well. Um, He just retired a few years ago from the police force, but he also was obsessed with BTK and hoping that he would get caught being a Wichita police officer. And so they were telling me, like at the time he got caught in 2005, so I was nine, about to be 10, Mm -hmm. uh, don't tell nine and 10 year olds who this man was because it scared me so bad. I made him call my mom to come pick me up because I didn't want to stay away from my mom. It was so awful. But so we are talking about BTK for listeners that don't know who BTK is or what BTK stands for. I'm going to tell you all about that. And I'm actually reading from the research that I typed up myself. So if it sounds very school presentation, that's why, and I'm sorry. Um, So BTK stands for bind, torture, and kill, which is already chilling and awful. Yeah, not, not good. This killer's rampage began that we know of in Kansas in January of 1974. I was not alive and neither were you, Summer. Um, You just asked me what year I was born while we were doing our research. Yeah, 96 for you, right? 95 for you, yeah. Yep, 95 for me. Well after our time. Yeah, well before our time. Uh, But my mom, she was going to turn two September of 1974. (laughs) So she was alive when he was starting to kill people, which is terrifying. So we begin on the morning of January 15th, sometime around 7.30. Dennis Rader, or BTK, broke into the home of Joseph and Julie Otero. 
Joseph and Julie, along with two of their five children, Josephine, age 11, and Joseph Jr., age nine, were held at gunpoint and forced into a family bedroom where he tied each of their hands and feet and strangled them one by one. In his own words, he acted out his sexual fantasies, which is disgusting, on Josephine after she died by being hung in the basement, leaving his semen at the scene of the crime. He confessed to stealing a radio from their house after cleaning things up and then drove their car to the grocery store where he left it before walking back to his own car and just carrying on with his day. No big deal. What? Mm -hmm. Later in the afternoon, Charlie Otero, the oldest of the Otero children, age 15 at the time, arrived home from school to hear his brother Danny, age 14, and his sister Carmen, age 13, yelling for him to come to the bedroom where they discovered the bodies of their parents and their younger brother. They thought that perhaps their family was playing a mean joke on them, but unfortunately soon learned this was no joke. Later that same year, in October of 1974, an editor of the Wichita Eagle newspaper received a phone call from a man that would guide him to find a hidden letter inside an engineering book at the Wichita Public Library. The letter revealed a full confession from someone who requested to be known as BTK, taking full responsibility for the Otero family murders. Three months after the murders, on April 4th, Raider took the life of Catherine Bright, a 21-year-old woman living in Sedgwick County, Kansas, which is literally where I'm from. It was not clear exactly when he had seen her prior to her murder, whether it was a few weeks or a few days or a few hours before, but he saw her and just decided that she would be one of his projects, which is what he called each of his victims and is disgusting and not okay. During his trial for her murder and for multiple others, he was asked how he chose her, and he replied, just by driving by one day, I saw her and I thought, that's a possibility. From Dennis Rader's recollection, that day he broke into her home from the back porch, hid near the bedroom, and around 2 p.m. she arrived back to her house with her brother, Kevin, which Dennis was not expecting. In a survivor victim interview, Kevin shared that the way they were greeted was by a man in gloves and in a stocking cap or a ski mask with a gun told them that he was a wanted criminal and that he just needed a car, but he forced them into the bedroom, forced Kevin to tie his sister Catherine's hands and feet, and then he took Kevin into a separate room and tied his feet to the bedpost so that he couldn't run. Raider began choking him, but Kevin broke free from his bondage and started fighting with Raider. Raider, however, pulled a gun on him and shot him in the face, but then Kevin somehow played dead? I don't know how you get shot in the face and then play dead, but... Wow. So Dennis went back into the bedroom to finish up, as he called it, his project with Catherine. She, however, also put up a fight with him, and he was unsuccessful while trying to choke her. Unfortunately, he therefore began stabbing her multiple times in the abdomen. During this time, he heard commotion coming from the bedroom that Kevin was in, and when he went back into the bedroom, discovered that Kevin was still alive, so again, shot him in the face. So he's now been shot in the face twice, but he's still playing dead. Again, how? He'll be all the way dead after the first one. Yeah. Right. Pictures of this. These were like in his cheek and like, it wasn't just a, a graze, y'all. It was, yeah. Yeah. In his face. It's crazy. Like I said, before finishing murdering Catherine, he shot her brother in the face again. But by his account, um, he heard even more commotion from where Kevin was and discovered that Kevin escaped out the front door, presumably to go get help. 
Raider then attempted to steal their car to run, but none of the keys worked, so he took off on foot, headed back east towards Wichita State University, where his car was parked, and he was able to get away. And again, I, I'm sure I'll say this several more times, but the fact that this all happened in my hometown, I know exactly where all of this is. It's just very weird to imagine it happening in my hometown, but it did, unfortunately. Were all of his murders in that area? Or like uh, over the course of it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they were all in Kansas and he grew up there and he, he never left, which I will get into later. So medics were able to get to Catherine thanks to her brother calling for help. But sadly, after multiple blood transfusions and emergency surgeries, she did not survive. Miraculously, though, her brother did. So speaking of your question or referring back to your question, I am going to back up a little bit and dive into the history of Dennis Rader. He was born on March 9, 1945 to parents William and Dorothea. He was the firstborn of four boys. And according to several reports, including his own confessions, as a child, he did torture animals, which for those of you that are unfamiliar, that is, Summer, I just told you about this. It's one of the warning signs of the McDonald triad, which the McDonald triad references main warning signs that indicate potentially whether someone could grow up to be a serial killer or another, you know, violent criminal. Mm -hmm. So if you want to know the three warning signs that I found, there are fire starting um, animal cruelty and bedwetting beyond the age of 12. Although I found several articles that suggested that bedwetting and fire starting aren't valid signs. It has to be all three. It, I think you're supposed to possess two of the traits or whatever you want to call them. But the animal cruelty is more of a solid warning sign because typically if a child is abusing animals, it, that's an indicator that they have experienced abuse themselves, which is very obviously psychological um, or does much psychological damage, which could there, like that could be a potential reason that we would find someone would commit such terrible crimes. But so he grew up in Wichita, Kansas, like myself, which is scary graduated from Heights High School and attended Kansas Wesleyan University for two years from 1965 to 1966 before he joined the U.S. Air Force for four years. When he returned back to the States, he settled in Park City, Kansas. Again, I have been there so many times. We go from Wichita to Park City to go to the antique stores and the Cracker Barrel. <laughs> I'm like, what? It's so scary. Which, yes, Park City is about seven miles north of Wichita, if anyone was wondering. He attended Butler Community College in El Dorado, Kansas, where my aunt lives, um, earning his associate's degree in electronics in 1973. And then that same fall, he enrolled at Wichita State University, where he would later graduate from four years later with a bachelor's degree in administration of justice, which is exactly what it sounds like. He studied the law and how it applies to the criminal justice system, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. That is interesting. Yeah. So from the time he returned from the Air Force to getting his bachelor degree in WSU in 1977, he had married his wife, he had a son, and he casually killed six people. 
five good. of them I mentioned earlier, um, but also a 24-year-old woman named Shirley Van, who was also found tied up and strangled in her home. He was responsible for 10 murders that we know of by 1991. So, Summer, this is the crazy thing to me. There's not, I mean, I didn't dive into every single one of his 10 victims, but there's not crazy consistency in the victims or in the time frames of how he, of when he killed, how he killed was similar, but it's very bizarre. I mean, he was able to get away with it for 30 years and two of his victims were children. Yes, a few were 20 something women, there's no pattern to his killings apart from how he killed his victims. So in 1974, when he first began killing, he murdered five people from January to April, but then he waited until October to even say, hey, I'm the person that did this without obviously telling them who he was. But then seemingly he just goes back to living under the radar without being BTK and just being Dennis Rader. It's like there's two different people Mm. living in him. People's ability to do things like that, I was, I forgot to um, mention the, the first case you read where they can do something so outlandish and then just go about their normal day. The mm-hmm. amount of cases I've seen where they'll like murder their wife or their children and then sleep in that house that night and just wake up the next morning and go to work and they find their bodies days later. Like, oh, that really shows how <laughs> twisted you have to be to be able to. Yeah, I agree. It's very, I mean, I guess that's why maybe I get stuck on it. Cause I just want to know how, what, how I'm like still carrying trauma from like age eight <laughs> that I still am like letting myself feel or process through. How are you just going to go steal a human life and a human life? And then, Oh, I, I got to get to work. Exactly. It's yeah. very weird. Anyways. So from 1974, from when he first killed, to 1977, nothing. Just essentially almost three years of silence. Um, But then again, when he did kill in 1977, he took the life of Shirley Van in March and then again took the life of Nancy Fox, age 25, in December. So again, there's that long gap between his killings and long gaps between when he kills versus when he admits that he killed these people there is like i said a similarity between the ages of his first few victims after the family murders but beyond that his later victims are well past their 20s and he even confessed after he was captured to waiting inside the home of a 63 year old woman to murder but then just decided to change his mind instead and he just left and i couldn't really find any anything that gave reason as to why he changed his mind but i mean thank goodness for that woman but it's like Is that something he admitted to after he was caught? Yes. Still, another victim after that in April of 1985 was a 53-year-old woman who lived on the same block as him. And then later that year in September, he killed a 28-year-old woman. So there's, it's like almost a little bit scarier that there's not really a consistent time frame or consistency to the victims or not many similarities between the victims which yeah, yeah, that 
if I was living in those cities at that time, it would just seem like completely separate murders, years apart with no... Exactly. I mean, if he hadn't been saying, hey, I'm BTK and I did this, how on earth would they know that it's the same person? Do people think it's not? Are there people that think he's just like taking credit for things years apart because no one's doing it and he's just like, I'll just say I did it. <laughs> I don't think so. Just because they, they found his mother load, like his, oh, no. his keepsake okay. of all of the things that he took from the crime scene, which I will get into later. That's on brand for a serial killer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So it's almost scarier that you can't predict any similarities or like when he might possibly strike because I don't know of all the high profile killers or criminals but of the ones that I know, they kind of do have a type or a way they go about doing things and like a time frame that they stick to because Ted Bundy definitely had a type of woman. Um, they all looked so similar and they were all college-aged girls and he kind of never really stopped. So that's an example. Or um, the Golden State Killer or the East Area Rapist also chose victims who did look pretty similar to one another, although there were definitely age gaps between his victims, um, but he always came in the nighttime, and again, he was, he stuck with it pretty consistently. It's just, it's weird to me. And then the Zodiac also mostly killed couples that were off, kind of isolated from the public, you know, at a car lookout point or near lakes or something like that, and so it's just very odd. You can, you can, yeah, that's a good question. Like, how would someone know that it was the same person? You but speaking of the Zodiac, mm -hmm. I feel like BTK kind of stole some ideas from him because he was killing a decade before BTK was. And the Zodiac was also known for sending in letters claiming responsibility for murders that were happening all around San Francisco and Northern California. Yeah, it would also be more unnerving for the community when this sounds awful but if you don't fit the profile of the people being killed like me being a 24 year old woman if i was in seattle at the time of you know ted bundy's reign i wouldn't i would be a lot more cautious and not be going out at night but when it's just random and you don't know who it's a little harder to be cautious or know when it's necessary to be cautious i guess yeah 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 mm -hmm. So whether he was copying the Zodiac or not, ultimately his letters would be what led to his arrest in February of 2005. So again, he started in 71 and he was arrested in 2005, which duh, your letters are what leads to your arrest. It's like, did you want to be caught? Because I think he definitely obviously just wanted credit, but they're going to get you, brother. What are you doing? Um, I mean, what are you doing killing people to begin with? But anyways. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, up until a year before the time of his arrest, there had been no killings and no letters received for 13 years. So in January of 2004, the Wichita Eagle published a feature story on the 30th anniversary of the Otero family murders. Mm. And lo and behold, two months later, in March of 2004, the Wichita Eagle receives a letter containing a photocopy of one of his later victims' driver's license, as well as three photos taken of her by her killer. So it was almost as if the feature story kind of set him off or like 
made him come back out of hiding. I know I've, I've heard things about um, people. I mean, we all know if you're into true crime and stories like this, that murderers tend to like to relive that moment. And I'm sure that brought him back to like, I guess, wanting to take the credit and get that attention again and relive that awful. Yeah. I mean, just so everyone listening knows, I'm leaving out many terrible, disgusting details because it's not necessary for everyone to know and it's not pleasant or warm to hear in the slightest. But he will just say did his fair share of reliving what happened on his own and that's all I'm going to say. And if someone needs to needs to know what that means, then please, by all means, go research it for yourself, but just do it in the daytime <laughs> because I made sure to do all my research on this in the daytime. I do have crime rules and it's, I don't listen to any crime or watch, well, I'll watch 2020 any time of day, but I don't listen to the spooky stuff after dark. Anyways, from the time this new letter was received in March of 2004, to his arrest in February of 2005, 11 more letters and puzzles and clues were sent to local media outlets and the police, um, which is more than he's ever sent in a small time frame. If you look up the timeline of his killings and his letters and clues that he sent in, this is a lot more than normal. It was kind of like overload. Um, so again, it seems to me he definitely wanted the credit maybe he just didn't want to be forgotten. I'm not really sure. But again, I'm like, did you want to be caught? They're going to, it's, it's in the two thousands at this point, science and technology are continuing to advance. Mm -hmm. They're going to get you anyways. So again, the thing that is so spooky to me about Dennis Rader is that he is very unsuspecting, which I mean, Ted Bundy didn't look suspicious and I don't really know what the Golden State Killer looked like. I can't remember when he was younger committing all his crimes. But when they caught him, I mean, he was either in his 70s or his 80s. They just caught him a couple years ago. And you look at him and you're like, this dude? Like, you're the one that did this? Which, what, what would warrant or, like, what characteristics or features would someone need to have that would make them look like a killer? But do you know what I mean? It's just very weird when it's the guy next door that you just don't feel like meets the criteria. But it is so scary. Many victims meet the fates that they do by unsuspicious predators. But this man was actually living a double life. He worked for criminal, or sorry, he worked for animal control and he was a devout member of the Lutheran church that he was a member of, which in fact, he would become president of the church council, which is gross and not okay. He was a Cub Scout, and I'm sorry for laughing at that. Um, he was a father, but he also stole the underwear of the victims that he murdered and would put them on after just casually. Like, what? Like, keep them in his dresser or put them on that day and wear them the rest of the day? Like keep them in his dresser and then get them out whenever he wanted, whenever he felt like it. Okay. For years. Yeah. In his confessions, he admitted to being sexually aroused by torture, and he also strongly believed something was always wrong with him because he was supposedly dropped on his head as a baby, which is valid. I mean, maybe, maybe that, maybe that undid some wiring. I don't know. But to end, 
this is my favorite part. Dennis had been communicating with the police via newspaper articles. Um, he would send in letters to the newspapers and then the police would respond in the newspaper, like with ads. Apparently he asked them, if I send you a floppy disk, are you going to be able to trace it? And they said, no, we're not. We're not going to be able to trace it. What year is this? 2005. 2005. So he sent his floppy disk to Cake TV, a local news station in Wichita, after he was assured that his floppy disk could not be traced. Plot twist. Plot twist. Yeah, I could not find what was on the floppy disk. I assume evidence or something making him obviously guilty. In his own words, quote, the floppy did me in. <laughs> That's what he said. The, the joke was on him because floppy disks can and could be read uh, or traced. Therefore, once the police realized that the floppy disk was drawn back to Christ Lutheran Church under the name Dennis, they look up the church and lo and behold, a man named Dennis is the president of the church council. Once they realized this, they drove past his home in an undercover car they spotted a very familiar vehicle that they had seen several times on security footage um, after each case. I mean, I don't know about the 70s, but I'm sure in the 80s. And I think his final crime was in 91 or his final murder. So to be extra sure, even though they were like, this is our guy, they asked his daughter for a DNA sample claiming that it was for a medical report, um, but it was actually an attempt to match her father's semen to the scene of a crime. And... After 30 years, it was a match and he was finally caught, but I did find it very comical. I mean, you can watch all of his interrogation turned confession the night he was arrested online, or I mean, most of it, you can find it. And I did not watch all of it, but some of it I watched. He was so hurt and offended that they lied to him. He asked them so many times, why did you lie to me? And the officer looks at him very matter of fact, and he says, well, because I wanted to catch you. <laughs> I'm just like, <laughs> duh. Anyways. Wow. Yep. I think that Dennis really believed that he had a relationship with law enforcement and media. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was apparently devastating to him to be lied to by someone he thought he was in a relationship with, which is clearly ironic because he was lying to his entire family and his coworkers and his church com- congregation and It's just, (laughs) anyways. So to end, Dennis Rader was charged with 10 counts of first-degree murder on August 19th, 2005 at age 60, set to serve a 175-year sentence, which would mean he wouldn't be up for parole until 2180. He will obviously die before then, as will we. Um, He was taken to El Dorado Correctional Facility the same day of his sentencing, and he will spend the rest of his days there. Side note, my aunt that I mentioned lived in El Dorado, worked at the El Dorado prison for 20 years, and she would just casually get up and go to work every day in the same building that Dennis Rader slash BTK was in. For 20 years. I mean, he, she, wasn't, she wasn't working there. He was not there for all the time she was working there. But So um, I had asked her 
if he was ever weird or if he caused any trouble or anything like that. And um, she saw him, not all the time, only a few times, but she never talked to him. But she told me that the most she ever heard about him was that sometimes he would complain about not getting enough vegetables with his meals. Hmm. Low maintenance. I like that. Yeah. And that is the story of BTK. Summarized for you and for everyone listening to this podcast. That was great. <laughs> that was so good. Um, do they have any like uh, documentary series or movies based on his stuff? They do. So yeah, uh, I'm so sad that Mindhunter is not coming back for a season three because it's a really good show. Um, I actually like season two better, which fun fact, Summer, you told me about it's like wanted a monster in Atlanta or Atlanta monster. You told me about that. So mind Hunter season two is set at the time of the Atlanta child murders and it is following that case, but the short baldish man that's in the beginning of mind Hunter, both in season one and in season two, that is supposed to be BTK because around the time of the child murders, that is when he was beginning his, I guess, exploration is what I'll call it. Great 2020 episode is, I think it's called My Father BTK. Um, His daughter wrote a book and then now she has an episode on 2020. Um, I'm sure that there's more, but those are the accurate, not entertaining, I mean, it's not entertaining, but the ones that are very interesting to watch that I know of. Do you have any final thoughts? No. I mean, yes. So many thoughts. Yeah. It just blows my mind that it's so, I mean, how consistently people like this fly under the radar and can do and live like the fact that he was holding a leadership position at a church and at the same time was doing those things and not feeling any kind of hypocrisy, uh, guilt, or if he was, or if this was a very clear, like you mentioned something that made it sound like he may have like literally had split personalities Mm -hmm. and have been and was two different people. And like, who knows if that time that he was in that woman's home, that 63 year old and just decided maybe not if that was some kind of switch in his brain of like switching from BTK back to Dennis or I don't know. Uh, I didn't know a whole lot about him and uh, he sounds like a a complicated man. (laughs) I agree. But the weird thing is that if you do watch bits of his confessions or of his, Mm -hmm. his statements in his trial, it's like, it doesn't seem like a split personality because he's just casually, yep, I broke in in the back door. And then yes, sir. Yes, your honor. Yes, sir. It's like, it's very weird and it's almost just like nothing's really there Mm -hmm. because he's just saying everything casually and almost not even in a proud way. He's just, yeah. So then I did this. It's like what you do when you come home and describe what you ate for lunch or something. It's very nothing to it. It was really weird. That's, that's funny. The, um, the most recent case I was telling you about that I've been reading about and watching the trial on it just ended like four weeks ago 
Um, and it was this younger guy in Knoxville, Tennessee, and all this happened in 2016 and he was just convicted on October 2nd. What is it? The 20th? Like, yeah, two weeks ago. And all of him in court is very similar. Like, so he even asked before the trial started, like, can y'all just give me the death penalty? Like I, I did it. I'm fine with that. I don't want to hire a lawyer. And they're like, just because you have this God complex where you can take someone's lives, we're not going to do that. So he's serving life, obviously, in um, Tennessee Correctional. But um, yeah, him, they were like flashing the pictures. So this, this guy at 28 murdered and dismantled his parents, like severed heads, arms, legs, everything in Knoxville, Tennessee, just because he overheard that they might be um, kicking him out of his apartment. Um, or not paying his rent anymore. So he just stayed later on Thanksgiving and took care of that. And then in the trial, when they were like flashing up the photos of all the stuff he had done and photos of his parents and their hands and like all that, there was just like grins on his face. And he was in the same room as like his half sisters, his parents, brothers and sisters, his aunts and uncles, and all of them sobbing and like telling him like, this is what you took from us. And he's just kind of like, yeah, I know. Like, thanks for reminding me. Like, it was so just like, yeah, I get it. But you saw zero, like, remorse. It's nuts that people can just be so a matter of fact. Yeah. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. I know. In our very own Tennessee. Sick. Really sick. It's nuts. And I remember, like, it's crazy because that stuff happening obviously is back in the seventies before you were alive. But I remember in my, my hometown, in my neighborhood, like streets over, there was one night that there was helicopters and like sirens in our neighborhood. And I was, Oh my gosh, like 14, 15. And I remember it as I was going to sleep and being like, wonder what that is. And found out the next morning that they was like, I can't remember what the, what their position was, but it was on like, it was some government position. They worked for the state of Texas or maybe Dallas County or whatever it was. Um, and a coworker went into the home of someone that they had some issue with at work. Like it was a promotion. He was disgruntled and went in and shot this person just in their house. And I remember hearing that on the news and that was in my small town, 20 minutes outside of Dallas and being like, if I heard that and that was just like in Arkansas, I'd be like, yeah, that happens. But then not that casually. It's sad, but it just sounds so different when it's like Forney, Texas or, you know, Wichita, Kansas or wherever. Yeah, yeah, crazy. I will say my roommate and I have had conversations of like, are serial killers a thing anymore? Because how do you get away with it now? Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm sure that they are. The most recent serial killer that I know of is Israel Keys, but even then he was killing a few years prior to now where we have such advanced technology to be able to catch people. Where was he? I've never even heard that name. Oh, well then, Summer, we might just have to do another episode. Oh, no. (laughs) You were a great listener and you added great little tidbits of some other similar-ish cases at the end and you've been a wonderful guest on this podcast (laughs) yeah i love sharing this kind of interest Uh, some people think it's sick (laughs) (laughs) 
yeah. there are people like you who are even more into it than I. <laughs> yeah, you're not even sick. You're just curious. I have a problem. <laughs> If you like what you've heard and want to support this project, if you're streaming on Spotify, it'd be amazing if you follow the podcast and download each episode as you stream them. If you're listening on the podcast's app, please give the show a five-star rating and it will help out immensely. Most importantly, of course, share these episodes with the people that you know. The theme song and audio production by Tip Frank, podcast artwork by Sierra Scott, Lydia Massey, and Kinsey Maroney. I appreciate everyone who's taking the time to listen to this. Until next time.